You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Yeah, we're getting close, though we haven't preached every passage of the Pentateuch. That would be long. That would be a years-long process. We've tried to grab some of the most significant, you know, formative in our understanding of who God is passages. Uh, how do these things work together? What is God doing and how is God... Uh, active as we see him saving the people of Israel, as we see him moving in power before that in creation, as we see the call of uh, Abram who becomes Abraham and we follow the story of Joseph or how, what is God doing and how is he moving because all of this is actually moving to new heavens and new earth. That's where we're going to get, uh, where God's people reside with him and he is with them and the new heavens and new earth. So all of this is pointing to something. It is pointing to the work of Jesus on the cross and it's pointing to the renewed world that we get to be a part of, part of because of the work of Jesus. We've been memorizing passages, and so we just try to uh, say them together if we know them uh, the, uh, the Sunday after. So we'll have a new passage this coming week. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, 31.8 is this coming week. But this past week, Matthew 22.36 through 40, which is a long one. Uh, we'll see how you guys do. So uh, it's important though, especially as we discussed the Ten Commandments last week, to have Jesus kind of articulate, summarize for us what's the most significant thing to understand as we hear that. So um, he's talking to somebody and it begins like this. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. Or, well, <laughs> I already messed it up. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Um, so I, I, we have it as a song. So I, I, I have this little thing in my head. I have to, I have to decode it. Um, This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So what Jesus is saying there is everything hinges on, first and foremost, our love for God with all that we have, and then that should then demonstrate itself in our love for one another. So our love for God is first, Our love for one another flows from our love for God as we see what God has done for us. Now I need to, we've talked about salvation a lot thus far and I just wanna make a a comment on that because if we're new to the scriptures or we're new in reading into the Old Testament, we might think that salvation came through doing the right thing. And it's important for us to realize that salvation is always by faith. Okay, so, so it's not like it just became by faith in the New Testament. We have verses like, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So faith, right? Trust, confidence, what we see is God has revealed himself. So faith is how we are saved. So in the Old Testament, when we keep talking about salvation, it is still by faith. It is faith in what God has revealed. It's faith in the work that God has done. And so, for example, when we read about the Passover... And the Lord says, kill this, paint the blood on the doorpost. It's both the activity, but the activity is rooted in faith in what God has said to do. In the same way that for us, it's faith in the work of Jesus. We have trust in the work of Jesus. So faith is always how one is saved, faith in God. And it is Christ's death and burial and resurrection that is the assurance of both Old Testament faith and New Testament faith. It's the work that Jesus has done. But faith is always how we get saved. We're not saved by works. We've never been saved by works. And so as we read, even today, about the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, 
in Leviticus chapter 16, there's a lot of instruction there, but ultimately it is still who God is, what God is saying, his character, and faith in him as they live these things out. The same way that you and I operate, right? We, we want to we operate from faith. In fact, we read in the New Testament, anything that is not from faith is sin. So even as you care for your family, or even as you go to work, or even as you come here today, we want to operate in faith, meaning God is here, we trust him, he motivates and, uh, and both in his allowing for us to be here and his graciousness, but from him and confidence in him, it should affect everything that we do, but he is the root. The things that matter most significantly are those things rooted in faith in God's character, his person, his work. So when we get to the day of atonement, we've kind of scooted along rather quickly uh, in Leviticus, and I wanna give a little bit of just background to what Leviticus is. Leviticus is a book of really instruction on how to be right with God. That's what it's trying to say, that when you sin, do this. So you start out and there's all these offerings. This is an offering and that's an offering and that's an offering. And what God is revealing is there's ways in which when you sin, there's ways in which you can sacrifice, offer, that then restore a right relationship. So I just need you for a second to just, 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 just don't have to say it out loud. If you do, great, if, but that'd be kind of weird. But just, just, for mad, just for a second, think about or list the ways in which you have failed. You could, you could be really specific and just go, how have you failed this morning? Like in what way, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's yell it out now. Um, or what are the ways that you have failed in this past week? And they can be big failures and small failures. What are the ways that you haven't measured up? There are so many of us who either operationally um, or actually live our lives as if uh, we're just weights on a scale. That, that we get to the end of life and we hope that there are more good things than bad things on the scale. That's really how many of us operate. And so you, know, you ask somebody this question, well I hope I'd go to heaven because I've been pretty good. There's a big problem with that statement is goodness is based upon me and what I think would be good and what I think would be right or what I think would be true. And so, of course, we all think we're awesome. We think that we're doing pretty good things. We think that we're a decent spouse. We think that we're a decent friend. Uh, the ones who say no, they're the more honest ones, and they know they aren't those things, but by and large, most people think that they're above average at everything, and that they're pretty good at most things. So, when you take a moment and self-assess, your list that you create will not be nearly as long as it should be all the ways that you have failed, both in what you say, what you think, what you do, what you feel. There are so many ways that you have failed, that we have failed. And we don't like dwelling on that thought for too long, I mean, I don't, because you start to feel rather icky, right? You're like, oh man, this and this and this. You start to just like, I don't wanna think about those things. Because when you, at the end of the day, you look at it, right, you have, you're, like, your hands aren't clean. No one's hands are clean. Now, if it was just about dirt on the outside, well, then you could just wash that off, right? I did something wrong, I'm just going to kind of wash my hands, take a shower, and I'll be good. But the problem with the wrongs that you and I do is they don't really get us dirty on the outside. They get us dirty on the inside. So there's a question that should exist for really every person, which is how do you clean your heart, like how do you clean the fact that you yourself 
are wrong a lot, bad, maybe we could even say evil. Like, how do you deal with that? How do you cleanse something that you can't wash? It's easy to wash externally, but how do you cleanse something that is so deep within you, rooted inside of you, that there's no way? There's no way, because the things that are rooted deep inside of you express themselves in actions. And you can try and not do the actions, but you still don't address the fact that there's something broken inside of you, and all of us feel this in different ways. We feel brokenness. We feel pain in our own lives and the lives of others. We, we know our own problems. We know our own issues. We know our own temptations. There's things we won't even tell our spouses or our friends because we are afraid of what might happen if that got exposed. We have this, this phrase we've used in our house as we're reading Genesis. We go, our sin makes us hide. That's what it does. Our sin makes us hide. Anytime that you are... Uh, you do something wrong, you think something wrong, you're gonna try and protect yourself from other people seeing it. But there's a problem with that, is that God, our creator, sees it all. He sees everything. Every sin, every wrong, everything. So when we were doing our reading plan in the first week of the year, in Genesis chapter three, there's what we call the fall of man. And Adam and Eve do what they should not, and then automatically God knows. He didn't have to you know, stare at it. He didn't have to like, catch closed circuit TV on it. He automatically knew. Now, poetically, we're following along with that and he has this interaction like he also often has with us uh, where he's like, hey, why are you hiding? Like he needed to say that, right? Like, like he needed to have that interaction. Like, what's going on here? It's the same thing parents do with their kids. You already know what has gone on, but like, let's just get to the spot and let's, let's get it out there. So for us, with broken hearts and dirty hearts and minds and thoughts and lives and speech, how do we clean that thing, especially because God sees it all? Well, that's what we see in the book of Leviticus. At this point in what we'll call salvation history, God is revealing how he wants his people to operate so that they can be in right relationship with him and in right relationship with one another, and along with that, so that the other nations might see his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. And we get in Leviticus chapter 16 to a significant part of Israel's year, the Day of Atonement. And atonement... Right, in, in Hebrews, they kind of like just the covering over. Like, how do you cover over it? How do you make it right? Some people say it like this. They go, uh, at, they just take the words of it, which is not how you should break it down, but they go, at one mint, um, which is how do you make yourself one again with God? How do, you, how, do you, how do you make things right? Have you ever wronged somebody and wanted to make it right? I mean, I hope so. Hopefully you have a conscience and you do something wrong. And you're, Man, how, how can I make this right? In fact, one of the 12 steps is about making things right so long as it doesn't harm the other person in doing so. And so, so going to people and trying to make things right is an important part of just being human. Well, going to God and making things right is a little different, isn't it? Because the, the problem we've had with him, the sin that we have done against him is so significant. He's eternal. How do you try to eternally make something right? Well, in Leviticus 16, we see the Day of Atonement, which is kind of a yearly process that he gives Israel. 
but it's going to point to something that we see in the work of Jesus. So we're going to have to kind of hold on to both of these. We're going to stay in Leviticus 16 at first. We're going to jump to uh, the book of Hebrews after that to put these things together. So we're going to learn about our, us, our sin, and God, specifically in the Day of Atonement, the day where Israel writes themselves in a significant yearly sense. And that's, in fact, one of our first ideas here. Before we read the passage, it's just the Day of Atonement was a yearly reminder of Israel's sin. It was also a yearly reminder of their relationship with God and God's grace to them. But year after year, they were faced with a stark reminder that they are sinful people. And they had to go time and time again and sacrifice, the right sacrifice in the right way. Aaron and the high, or the high priest, they had to do things the right way. And so there are all these instructions on how God wants his people to operate with him on this day. So Leviticus chapter 16, usually by the time we're in a reading plan, we get to Leviticus and we're kind of donezo. Like, we, like, we try to make it through like the first four, five, six chapters of Leviticus, and then we're like, wake me up you know, when it's over. We don't know what to do with it. So we're gonna jump into Leviticus 16 because this is the part that we often don't make it to that's important for what we see and what God is doing. So Leviticus 16 goes like this. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. They did something wrong. Okay, they created strange fire, Aaron's sons, and God wiped them out. So now God's wiped them out, he's saying, hey, let's, let's talk about how you can do this right. So after the death of his two sons, the Lord went to, uh, went to Moses and spoke, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, which is a place where God, uh, God's presence would reside. If you finished Exodus, you saw that. You know, the tabernacle's done and God's presence is there. And so come into the holy place, don't have him come inside before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Again, it's this, the holy place is this place where God's presence is where once a year the high priest can go in and offer sacrifices, but just once a year. So 364 days a year, don't go near it or you die. The other day a year, better go near it the right way or you die. You got it. You guys are smart. I will appear in the cloud. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, uh, the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash round his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So, right, you're gonna have to, hey, you might wanna pinch your spouse or your neighbor to stay awake because we're gonna, like, you're gonna get into this instruction to go, I don't know what's going on. So this passage, there's gonna be some brief like, hey, this is how it's gonna go, and then it extends with more detail, right? So brief kind of explainer of the whole thing, then we're gonna get into more detail, and then, I don't know why I say detail when I preach, but I say detail if I'm not, uh, but detail sounds more, more, uh, more sermon-like. Yeah, detail. Detail feels good. 
Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. This is like the uh, oxygen mask on a plane. Like, put the oxygen mask on yourself first, then put it on the kids. Deal with your own problems, then deal with the nation's problems. Like, that's what he's trying to say. You have to be clean if you're going to help the rest of the, of the nation also be clean. So, offer it for yourself and for your household, for the priest. Then you shall take two goats, set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, a lot for the Lord and a lot for Azazel. I know I'm stopping a lot, but Azazel's a weird character, okay? So I don't know what your translation says, but there's kind of like three different things, three different ideas behind what Azazel means. Um, There's a Denzel Washington movie where Azazel shows up too. So pretty common idea of what Azazel is, is a demon, Okay, there's like this demon that you offer one of these goats to, but it's not like a sacrifice, okay? So you're not appeasing demons. So thought number one is Azazel, and if you have like capital A Azazel in your text, then the translators are going, we think that's, gonna, that, that's like a person. So the Lord gets the sacrifice, and then the sins get released, and they go to this demon. So that's one uh, interpretation. Some of your translations might not say that, though. They might say like scapegoat, where they're looking at uh, the language of, you know, Azazel in Hebrew, and they're going, I think this is some kind of play on words of, of goat, and it's a scapegoat. And then other translations might just call it like this cut off or desolate place. Okay, so, so this, is, this is just a little, this is Hans's tricks of the trade. Like one of those is probably right. Most people land with demon. Others say scapegoat. Others say it's just a cut off or desolate place. So you're releasing this goat to kind of go off and never be seen again. Okay, so all of those could be. And different translations take different things. However, when that happens, sometimes we get really stuck on trying to figure out what Azazel means. And I always have to kind of zoom back and go, okay, what do you know is happening for sure? of what can you be confident? And this is what you can be confident of. That there's going to be the sins of the nation placed on a goat, and that is going to go away and never come back. Now where it's going, and how long it takes to get there, and who's there when it's there, not totally sure. Not totally sure, but what I do know is the idea, the imagery is, we gotta get this thing as far away from us as possible. That's for sure. So that's what we know is happening. So one for the Lord, one for Azazel. If it is Azazel, it's not an offering because we do not appease demons here, right? We belong to the Lord, we honor the Lord. And so if we do go with that, it's not an offering. It's just you go back to where you came from because sins stink. Okay, verse nine, it's gonna take a while, guys. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, use it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, and it shall be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel, or to the cutoff place, or to, uh, as a scapegoat. Aaron then shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he'll make atonement for himself and for his house. This is the more detailed instructions. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals, now imagine this, and fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense uh, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. This is the, place, this is the place you can only go once. Inside the veil, and you put it as a fire before the Lord in a sense to protect himself from God's presence. So he's putting a, a sense of cloak between him and the Lord as he ministers 
ministers in the holy place. Now, verse 14, he shall take some blood of the bull, sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, and on the east side, in front of the mercy seat, just sprinkle some blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring blood inside the veil and do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Now this one though is for the people. For sacrifices for him and his house, now he can minister on behalf of the people. Sprinkling it over the mercy seat, in front of the mercy seat, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Uncleannesses. Lots of unclean here. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and his house and for all the assembly. So you just better stay away while this is happening. Then he shall go out of the altar before the Lord Make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all round. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on, its, on it, with it uh, with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So a lot going on here. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Remember, one of these things is still alive. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, all the ways they've screwed up. Just for the past year. This is every year. So hey, you know, like I don't think he's getting a log and going, and Blaine did this, and Rock did this. Like he's not, he's not doing that, but every way that they have wronged the Lord, things they've done, things that they've not done, that is being confessed. Because if he had to confess every single one, he'd still be doing it after year one, saying all of the ways that they had failed. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. So there's some, I don't want that job the one who has to take the goat into the wilderness, but somebody else is ready, and they have to then go take that thing as far away as possible. The goat shall bear, symbolically bear, all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. I mean, look at that imagery, just as far away as those sins can be. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting. He shall take off the linen garments he shall put on when he, uh, that he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. He should bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards he may come into the camp. So anybody who had a role in what happened that day has to prepare themselves on the front end and then when it's done, cleanse themselves in the back end. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make the atonement shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards he may come into the camp. So there's some summary on how it's supposed to work. In this it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of that month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either native or stranger, who sojourns among you. For on this day 
shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Wouldn't that be nice? It is a Sabbath solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever, and the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's house shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar. And he shall take atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement be made for the people of Israel once in the year, uh, because, once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. Now we can breathe. Now remember, like, shake your neighbor. Like, we've kind of gone through those details. Like, a lot of things dying, a lot of blood being sprinkled, lots of, like, this is a pretty heavy day. So I want to just go through this, say a couple of things. This is a yearly reminder of their sin. Aaron had to be forgiven. The people had to be forgiven. The whole nation had to be cleansed. Year after year after year after year after year, this was something that they should be doing. Now, here's what we can just say, taking, away, it's taking a step back, that we realize from Leviticus 16. First idea, we all approach God in need, which seems like a no-brainer. We all approach God in need, but you actually see that in the instructions for how this is supposed to go. If you remember the priestly garments, they're supposed to be rather glorious. Like week in and week out, high priests get to wear some swag. They get nice clothes. Like they get to be set apart and look different. On the day of atonement, they change and they're basically wearing like just linen clothes. What is he saying there? In regard to your ministry for the people, 364 days out of the year, you stand out as different. But on the day that you make atonement for everybody, you are the same kind of person in need. In the presence of God, Aaron becomes incredibly plain. Incredibly plain. You see that in verse four. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. Those are, these are the holy garments for the day of atonement. The garments day in and day out are not that. They're much different. So even in how Aaron dresses, he is, the Lord is communicating, you need this too, buddy. Like no one is exempt from needing to be humble in my sight, in my presence. Not only that, but if he does it wrong, he dies. He dies. So even the ministry of the high priest, if it doesn't do it in obedience to what the Lord has revealed, do it wrong, just like his sons, done. You have to do it. Now I would just say, read Leviticus 16 and try and find the rope that got tied around the ankle. We like to use sometimes that as like an illustration of, oh yeah, they used to tie a rope around the ankle and pull him out in case he died and there were bells on and things like that. Just if you look at the instruction of the Day of Atonement, there is no instruction about tying a rope around the high priest's ankle so you can drag him out of the holy place unless he dies. Preach as well, doesn't exist in Leviticus 16, uh, but makes for a fun sermon. But that's not there, which is unfortunate because it'd be cool, it'd be cool to say. Um, but here's the thing, we all have the same problem when it comes to our relationship with God. 
we have wronged him. We've wronged him. If there is a person in here today who says, I have not wronged a person, I have not wronged the Lord, then there's a liar amongst us. It's not true. We've all wronged him. And the crazy thing is you don't have to admit he exists to have wronged him. If you go, well, how could I wrong somebody who doesn't exist? I'm like, you might want to double check that. We all have the same problem when it comes to the Lord. We've wronged him and we need to be forgiven. Now, there are phrases we use in our earthly relationships where we might go to somebody and go, how can I make it right? How can I make it right? And those are hard conversations. How can I make this right? How can I make our relationship good again? Because sometimes, in a human sense, like, it's like that's going to take like 17 years. I mean, the, 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 the breach of trust and confidence was so significant that I'm not sure that I can just kind of jump back in. The cool thing is with the Lord, when he provides the way, it's, it's done. He's not like, well, I'm going to get like, you're going to be like 85% forgiven for that sin on the Day of Atonement, and then next year you get the next 15%. It's like God operates in a realm totally different than you and I. Is that when he can offer forgiveness, he offers it. It comes and it's done. It's given. We don't have to go back and forth. Okay, what can I do this time? And what can I do that time? What can I do that time? So we don't have to let, God doesn't keep us at bay as if he is just like, well, you know, do this this time and do this next time. He doesn't give us these hoops to jump through in order to have that right relationship with him. He does say this is how the day is gonna go. But once it's done, they'll be atone, all their sins will be atoned for. Now this is another thing we have to realize about us, and we read the Day of Atonement, is that our sin is serious. It's serious. Things die when we sin. It started in Genesis chapter three when Adam and Eve sin and God then covers them with skins of animals. It wasn't like they just had these skins sitting around that had no animal as a part of them. So even in Genesis 3, we realize that when you misstep, something dies. And so in order to be forgiven for all the people, look at what has to go on that day. There's the offering for Aaron in his household. There's the go. There's the one that has to then go. Then you have to cleanse yourself. Like It is a serious deal to wrong people. And something that our culture misses, you and I miss really often, is the weightiness of wronging people, specifically wronging the Lord. We have a phrase in our human relationships where we go like, hey, are we good? Oh, yeah, we're good. I'm like, no, you aren't. You are not good. There was no forgiveness being asked. There was no honesty about what was going on. All you're trying to do is jump over the consequences of your sin and pretend like things are good when they aren't. So we have a way in our world of trying to move past, bypass the weight, the seriousness of our wrongs. And this is how I can tell. When, I, when I'm confronting somebody or having a conversation with somebody about maybe their sinfulness, their issues, my sinfulness, our issues, like whatever it is, right? It's not, always, not, not just always them and them, me to them, but it's them to me. What we realize in that <clears throat> is, I, what I realize is when people are like, can we stop talking about this? And I go, you haven't realized the weight. When you're ready just to move past it, when you're ready not to think about it, when you're ready in your relationship to kind of just be done, I go, you haven't really considered just how serious this is. I mean, you can just look at, at, at verse 10 and you see that. 
right? First in verse 9, there's, this, uh, there's a lot that, that comes, and one, on one goat goes to Azazel, one goat goes to the Lord, one's going to be killed, one's going to be sent away. Like, instructions abound in this. Why? Because the people are sinful. That God takes our sin seriously. But not just that, as we think about it, our sin is costly. We have this cheap way of thinking about our sinfulness. We just refer to it. Like, it's like, God doesn't go, and this is important for us to realize when we think about God, God does not go, oh, hey, it's all good. I'm not bothered. We're good. No, he is bothered. He is angered by our sin. But he provides the way, right? So he doesn't just go, oh, don't, 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 don't worry about it. Don't think about it. This is not how God operates. Never once, as we've read thus far, Genesis, Exodus, now in Leviticus, never once have we read God go, oh, yeah, don't worry about it, bro. It's no big deal, like we all make mistakes. The amount of times he is ready to destroy the nation for their grumbling, for their frustration with him, for their anger with him, for the way, why did you bring us here, God? Why did you bring us here, Moses? He's always realizing and having to bear with the ridiculous nature of his people. But he doesn't just go, oh, no big deal. It's important to realize that in the character of God. Because sometimes I go, oh, if I just do good things, God loves me. Nope. It's not how it works. It's not just to be nice, to smile more, right? Like, like it's not, that's, not, that's not how we receive forgiveness, but it's how we'd like to. Because we don't want to take seriously the wrongs that we have done. But this is the great thing about God. God has always provided a way to receive forgiveness. From the beginning, he has provided a way to receive forgiveness. He has provided a way for people to be in a right relationship with him. That is gracious. That is loving. That is kind. Because the amount of times, as we read the nation of Israel, or the amount of times Genesis Community Church and the people who make up the membership of Genesis Community Church wrong one another and wrong the Lord, significant. But God does not hide how we can be made right. And that's beautiful. He makes it clear. The problem is God is creator, so the terms are his to make. In us, in our arrogance, we just decide we don't like the terms. So we'll make new terms. Well, I can't believe in a God who would, or I don't think that God would act like that, or I don't, I don't know. I'm like, really? Like, God is providing a way for people to be right with him. Take it. You don't have to try and dismiss it away as, you know, that's too crazy. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do it like that. If I were God, well, good thing you're not because we'd all be done for. God is always providing a way. And we see that throughout Leviticus 16. Do this, live like this, believe this, follow this, and you'll be forgiven. Aaron and his house, then the nation, they'll be forgiven. The sins will not be remembered any longer. And then a year comes and they have to reset. This is the great thing for us who live in an era in which we do is we see that and can you imagine if the nation is faithful and they do this year after year after year after year, just that constant reminder of your sins like a mirror staring you at the face, telling you all the ways that you don't measure up. 
all the ways that you have been wrong, all the ways that you have caused pain and suffering and hurt and you've grieved people and family and friends, that every year you would have that. Every breach of trust, everything you've done against God, every thought, every way you haven't aligned your heart, your mind, your speech with him, time and time again being brought before you, but we live in a different era. Where Jesus, where Jesus is the one who was able for our sins to be forgiven once and for all. The New Testament book that is most like Leviticus is Hebrews. Hebrews is going through time and time again and it's trying to show how these things connect. Look at what you did here. Now look at Jesus. Look at what happened with Israel here. Now look at Jesus. And look what happens in Leviticus chapter nine. Just start in verse six. I have a few verses we'll run through. These preparations... Having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that is not, not you know, in front of the veil, in front of the curtain, performing their ritual duties. But to the second, behind the curtain, only the high priest goes, and he goes but once a year, and not without taking blood. So this is now after Jesus, the author of Hebrews, is writing about the Old Testament and the Day of Atonement. So he goes once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Okay, so what that means is, in the revelation of how the Day of Atonement was supposed to go, the Holy Spirit is saying there's a divide between God and man that the priests can bridge through once a year. So in doing that, that's what's happening, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this, though, this arrangement, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, the time of Christ. So in this, they could operate in a certain way, and once a year they could feel that kind of atonement, that forgiveness, but even then it didn't fully cleanse them like we can be cleansed. It pointed to something else. Now look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now listen to this. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If this could wash somebody, even momentarily, how much more would the perfect sacrifice of Jesus cleanse the whole person forever? That, brothers and sisters, is what we get to join in on. In fact, as we uh, head into maybe the Easter season next month and we're thinking about these passages, there's another one that we need to remember, something that happens at the death of Jesus that is significant as we think about what we just read in Hebrews and what we just read in Leviticus, Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is Jesus on the cross and he died. 
Look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, we were reading about the tabernacle in Leviticus, but then the temple is constructed and the ministry happens in the temple. So when Jesus died, when Jesus died, the veil was torn and the break between God and man was gone because of the work of Jesus. So what we see in Leviticus 16 is just really the seedling of what God gives us in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. The atonement that the nation receives in Leviticus 16, year after year after year, which is insignificant for ongoing forgiveness, it falls short in Christ is fully forgiven. Never again, and this is the amazing thing for us, never again do we ever have to then re-sacrifice, redo, restart. There are always ways we have to confess our sin to one another. It's not as if, oh, you never have to say anything again. No, we always confess our sins to God. We always confess our sins to one another. But you know what we don't have to do? Wait 363 more days for that day when we can finally feel as if something has happened. What we have in Jesus is instantaneous. In fact, when we don't, uh, when we don't walk in the freedom of confessing our sins and the forgiveness that we have, we're living, in a sense, with an Old Testament mindset. I'm gonna have to do, do this again. That's not how it works with our Lord. He provided the way through his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. So us, through faith in Jesus, because salvation is always by faith, can be forgiven forever. We don't have to ask the question, is God mad at me? Is he angry with me forever? Have I blown it? Am I still able to be forgiven? You don't know what I've done. You don't know how I've sinned. You don't know the wrongs that I have done to my family, to my friends. You don't know how I've lied and how I've cheated and how I've harmed. I go, you know what? I don't have to know. The one who does know and the one who you have harmed most significantly is aware and has provided a way for you to find forgiveness. I'm not your judge, he is. Nor am I your forgiver, he is. And if I, through Christ, can be forgiven, then brothers and sisters, friends here who may not know Jesus, you too can. If he's forgiven me, he can forgive you. You know, maybe I could have just started this by just listing every sin that I've done in the past 48 hours. I'd still be going. And yet I get to walk in freedom because of what Jesus has done. That what we see in Leviticus 16 stops short of full and final forgiveness, but what we see in Jesus gives us everything. So first, I would say this. If you're here today and you live by a gospel of works, if you think that 
God loves you because of how hard you do stuff, or you think that you're generally a good person because you're more often than not nice and people like you, I would say this, find salvation in Jesus. Your goodness is never good enough, and your badness is, ever, is never so bad. Go to Jesus and be forgiven forever. How? I would say this, it's as simple as confessing your need for him, his perfect sacrifice, and realizing that you can't do it, and he did. We'll work on the rest from there. But in order to receive salvation, believe Jesus' sacrifice for you was sufficient to be made right with God. The rest is the walk that many brothers and sisters in this room are on, which is now, how do I live freely? How do, I, how do I honor God in these things? How do, I, how do I, from a place of gratitude and joy, how do I serve him with all that I have? So that's thing one. The other application is for all of us who try to then appease God by certain works or behaviors, and even though we have found our salvation. It's to keep finding salvation in Jesus, which sounds a little funny, but so often we have this view of like, God gets me saved, but I keep me saved. So thanks for getting me in the door, God, but now I'm gonna have to work really hard to stay in because I don't wanna get kicked out. Well, if you do that, then, then you don't really realize, one, how bad you are because you somehow think that if you just do enough good things, you're good, which you aren't. Second, you think that the work of Jesus was somehow insufficient for saving all of you. And you can't say that. Because if somehow you can do something to assure that you and God are good, if you can do something, if you can bring something to the table, then you don't realize how bad you are and how good God is. He has given us everything. So whether for the first time we need to find ourselves our salvation in Jesus, or for the 35th time or the 3,000th time that we thought that we could, by doing something right, make God love us a little more than he did previously, we can't. The fact that Jesus has forgiven every aspect of our heart and our wrongs through his death, burial, and resurrection means for us that we are free. Friends, I would encourage you, if you have not found Christ, to find him. But I would also encourage you that if you have somehow veered from just the goodness of being forgiven, that you stop trying to find wholeness and little s salvation in any other way but the work of Jesus. Because we have been fully and freely forgiven in him. So pray with me. Father, as we read in Leviticus 16, you are pointing to a new era now in Christ, but we realize the weight of sin and the need for grace and how good you are to us. Might you, Lord, continue to grow our hearts to trust in you, to not try and live out some kind of works-based salvation where we do certain things and you love us more. We believe certain things a certain way and all of a sudden you're much more happy with us, God, but that we, we get to receive your grace freely because of the cost, the price Jesus paid, that we can be made right with you through him. Continue, Lord, to root us as a people in that truth that we find great joy 
bring great hope in the work of Jesus for us. We delight in him and serve you freely, gladly and joyfully. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.